It's time for To The Last Drop Podcast with Liam Delcom and Brandon Nell. Welcome to our show. We are back. And I say back, I mean we are back home. This is the post-World Cup edition of To The Last Drop. I'm Liam Delcom. With me is Brendan Nell. Brendan, I see you've made it home safely. I did. I must admit, I was in a much nicer place than you, Liam. Although I suppose being in France for the World Cup final, I can't really say that. Uh, I was in Mauritius for a couple of days, so I mean, I, I, I've got nothing to complain about, um, and ha- did have an epic trip. So yeah, but it's always to get back to South Africa is always a a, a, a treat. And and the you know the guys had so much apparently bad weather the last week, apparently quite freezing in their snow places. And when I got back to the airport, the first thing I said to the passport guys, "Geez, I leave the country for one week." And we forget how to summer. So um, mm. <laughs> hopefully now that we're back, we'll have a bit of warmer weather. Yeah, yeah. It's been a, a slight adjustment for me as well uh, because we, we started uh, World Cup and it was boiling hot in the south. And then, of course, as the tournament progressed and the tournament moved to Paris, the autumn chill caught you. Um, and then, of course, getting back here, uh, you know, but, uh, distinct temperature change as well. Yeah, but I mean, I suppose you get back here, and, and, and I don't think a lot of people understand that everybody watches, and I watched it as a fan, you know, with a lot of a bunch of South African friends in, in Mauritius uh, this week in the final. But once you work to the tournament like this, you're absolutely exhausted by the end of the two months, and you get back, and everybody else is celebrating, um, and there's a trophy tour going on. And as we speak, the boxer going through the street somewhere, uh, you know, to, to cheering fans. And, and and enjoying the, the the fruits of their labor, so to speak. But uh, yeah, it's it's almost the you almost say too exhausted to enjoy it as much as you can. But uh, uh, yeah, it's great to see them winning it, and I'm sure you're going to get some lot much needed sleep over the next couple of days. Yes, it is much needed. I have to say, uh, of course, you never uh, sleep well on an aircraft unless, of course, you in the front of the aircraft. <laughs> uh, so yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to that. Uh, obviously, uh, the box, as you say, uh, on this trophy tour and much deserved, uh, they really had to dig deep uh, in this tournament to get the job done, uh, facing five of the uh, other, well, in the, if you look at the top six, they've basically faced the other five uh, on their way to this trophy, uh, won a, one hell of a final, could have gone either way. Um, and if you look at that final, I mean, there were some, some tipping points, uh, most notably, <laughs> yeah, most notably, um, you know, the, the Sam Kane incident, I suppose. And that's obviously ruffled a few feathers, a few Kiwi feathers in New Zealand. Uh, do you think, do you think there was just cause? Well, when I was sitting watching it, the first thing I thought was when I saw that, uh, that exact incident, uh, my first reaction to the people around me was that's right. And they were all geez, really. And, and, um, and and my explanation to them was, look, I I, don't, I, I would never want to card a player in the final uh, if I was a ref, but um, by the strict letter of the law, that was read. And yeah, yeah. Um, and, and players have been warned about it. Um, it's always unfortunate when it happens, and we and it's a whole dif- different discussion when you when you ask whether you know those red cards are justified or whether they actually mm. should be read. That's a whole different discussion. But in the final, on the, on that specific incident, it was red, and and while there's been a lot of comments about that and a lot of comments about the refereeing, I don't think the TMO had any choice in that matter. 
Mm. In fact, I mean, for months leading up to this tournament, uh, a lot of people, I mean, I've expressed it, I'm sure you have as well. There was always the fear that one of those calls, uh, when it comes to to head contact in particular, uh, was going to have a huge impact uh, on a semi-final or potentially a final. In this case, in the most sort of high-profile environment you could possibly imagine, that that happened. So, um, World Rugby can't say that they didn't see it coming. Uh, and you're right. I mean, to the letter of the law, that is a red. The Kiwis will probably feel well. What about Sia? Um, then you have to go into the the explanations provided by the by the match officials. Um, in, when when that when I saw that, I I did fear that they might give him red as well, just to even mm. things out. But um, thankfully. Uh, they went through it in a. Uh, they took the emotion out of it. There's another argument I think. I think yeah, that, that, and it's a totally separate argument with, with which maybe New Zealand should look at. Um, in the months preceding uh, the World Cup, I mean, we've all seen it on Twitter. We've seen um, video clips being sent around about yeah you know, car, uh, cards that were given in Super Rugby that we, a lot of people felt within the Northern Hemisphere or in URC would have been a red card. But suddenly, mm. somehow, uh, yeah. it's, a, it's a yellow card, and um, they got away with it. And now, considering when you look at the stats for the tournament, New Zealand got five yellows and two reds in, in the tournament, more than any other side. And the only sides that came close to them were the Minnows, the Romanias and Namibias, etc. No tier one nation came close. So... Yeah, I think there's a genuine argument you can make there that perhaps the leniency in Super Rugby maybe contributed to that, and that's yeah maybe that helped out to that. But um, you know, to me, every nation knew what was coming in this World Cup. They were briefed. Uh, the referees have been pretty consistent in this World Cup when it comes to the red cards and the yellow cards. And while yeah, and there we might have uh, uh, feel that players unlucky. I don't think I think it's probably been better ref than some of the. Internationals we we had in the last two years where we've seen cards. Mm-hmm. Yeah, look, I mean, I feel for the officials. It is a devilishly difficult thing to do um, under normal circumstances. Even when you take out the, the things that have been sort of added, the layers that have been added to to the responsibilities of, of match officials. Where you know, um, if you look at foul play, for instance, if you look at uh, the head contact, the you know those things that they have to be really alert to. Um, so I feel for them. Uh, there are obviously one or two referees that are just bad referees. You'll, you'll always yeah. get that. Yeah. We don't have to delve into that today. But I think overall, I think they, they acquitted themselves pretty well. Um, and I will also say that I feel, I really feel for New Zealand. Um, that is a final that could have gone either way. A conversion goes over, or a late penalty goes over, um, but then the roles are reversed. So I feel for them, they made a hell of a fist of it in the last 50 minutes. Um, and, and the strange thing again, we've seen this in previous World Cups as well. A player gets sent off and it galvanizes his teammates and they actually play better. Yeah. I mean, it did, it's done a number of times for the box in the past as well. I, I think, I think, you know, I saw one of our colleagues, Alex Lowe in the Times put it quite, quite clearly. Um, and I think Stephen Jones there as well, uh, of all people, uh, you know, that, that unfortunately what it's come down to is that we, we, uh, we're expecting referees to make black and white decisions and where the law is complicated and we're dealing with mm. a split second um, collision and referees need to make a black and white decision. And there's not, never going to be a black and white decision. Rugby is full mm. of these interpretations. 
So, um, and I, th- I think that's where the law probably needs to be sorted out. And I agree with them. Yeah, at the end of the day, I think we all want clarity. You want fans to understand exactly, you know, what what the the, the protocols are, what players are going to get. Maybe mm. maybe this will, uh, you know, come to uh, lead to something for world rugby. But you know, the way they're patting themselves on the back, um, <laughs> I severely doubt it that anything ever yeah. changes at World Rugby. Um, just well, on, yeah, I mean, in, uh, just if I if I might just yeah. add, um, yeah, not too long ago, um, the Rugby World Cup uh, was a celebration of the game, and the abiding memory when you went away from the World Cup was a world in union. And I have to say, the last few editions, uh, no, obviously, no more so than this edition. It is very much a world divided. Yeah. Now, I think you can see it. And I mean, I think we can touch on it now, just go straight into it, but some of the reactions that we've seen, I mean, uh, from the overseas press, from from uh, you know, a bunch of, of pundits and former players and things like that, almost, and I mean, we, I know we felt this way in 2019 when the box were, were sort of told that they, they didn't beat anybody to win it. Now, this time... Um, you know, mm. our, our mate Gavin Rich said it the other day. He said Kitch Christie used to talk about the high road and the low road to the final. Uh, he said this was the underground road, and and pretty much they had to dig very deep to get there. One point victories in the quarters, semis, and the final. Um, yeah, and mm. it just feels that despite all the grits, the guts, the bravery, all that sort of stuff, yeah, they they don't seem to get the credit. I mean, outside South Africa, um, and. Mm. And it just, yeah, I mean, we keep on hearing these stories about how rugby needs to be played and how rugby needs to, you know, need to be, needs to be a beautiful game and all this. And I'm sorry, and I'm going to call it here rubbish because with any sport, and, and I already have your take on this, with any sport, when you start the sport and you coach a team, the first thing you do is you get the fundamentals right. Now, the box are a fundamentals team. They've got a strong scrum, strong line out, yeah, good defense, physicality. Those are all fundamentals of rugby. Um, those are the things you, you do to earn the right to go wide. And it's almost as if people think, no, you, you got to play this beautiful running game. Well, France were spectacular in that, but when the pressure came, they can take it. Scotland, by I was looking at the stats this morning of the tournament, Scotland had the most offloads, most line breaks, most defenders beaten in the entire tournament, but they never made it out the pool's face. So at the end of the day, you know, I mean, you know, there's more than one way to play a game, and I think that's what probably irritates me the most about the entire discussion is that there's this sense overseas that there's only one way to play a game, and because the box don't always subscribe to that, that means they're not doing it right. Those things that you've mentioned, the fundamentals uh, and, and the technical elements of the game, I think there's no doubt if you look at this World Cup, if you reflect on it, uh, the the teams are a lot closer now. There's no doubt. Mm. There's a there's a bunch of teams that it's very very difficult to separate them. Uh, the score lines, I think, towards the end will bear that out. So then you look for things that help separate teams, and there's absolutely no doubt that the Springboks, when it comes to mentality, when it comes to resolve, when it comes to having to dig deep in in those difficult moments to go that extra little bit, uh, have it in their DNA more than, more than other teams. And yeah. history will, history will bail me out here because they have since 20, uh, the 2003 world cup in a 20 year span in those matches that matter in over 20 years, they've lost only two knockout matches at the world cup. Mm. 
they've I think they've played ten. They've only lost two, and I think that that says something of you know the way a team goes into a game, into a game that matters, um, where it's very difficult, where it's hard to separate teams. That they have that ability to not go away, to not give up, and to do that little bit, a little bit more to get over the line. Um, so it's 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 now very much part of their DNA, and it's one of those things that will stand you in good stead in in, in tournaments to come because other teams will go up against you, uh, knowing that fact. Yeah, and and I think I think to bring it a step further, and and this is also for any of anybody who's listening to us outside of South Africa. Um, South Africans will probably know this a lot more, so I'm probably preaching to the converted if they hear that. But yeah, more than any other team at the World Cup, this team plays for its country. And I don't think you it's 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 an easy thing to say and it's an easy thing to misunderstand. But if if you see the hope and and you see the the the, the joy and elation in this country, um I know every country supports its team, every country's got passionate fans, but South Africa's a bit more. It's a bit more on the socioeconomic level. It's a bit more about bringing hope to people who are in, in, in a desperate situation. It's a bit more about the team understanding their role in society, you know, whereas other teams are, are simply professional teams. And they, while they're well supported and probably, and, and probably, you know, national icons and well, well, um, you know, passionate fans and all of that, South Africa, there's a bit more of a, it feels like there's a bit more to it than that. And, so, so when the team says they don't play for World Cup, they play for the fans. You understand it when you see these pictures from the trophy tour, and you see people crying in the streets, um, and you just know what mean it means to every South African for them to win, and now back to back World Cups. Um, you know, it's it's because there's so much other things that make you almost desperate and 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 despondent in the country, and that's the reality. Yeah. And they bring hope. Yeah, and more than any politician ever will. Yeah, but also we need to, as a country, move on from that. The question I wanted to ask in the press conference, and I didn't get an opportunity to, because other, you know, you have to kind of wait your mm. turn, and then ran out of time. Because uh, I wanted to ask Sia because he spoke about those things, but I wanted to ask him whether it's fair, you know, to expect the Springboks to do that uh, every time they run out onto the field. Whether it's fair to expect them to bring the hope and everything else that goes along with it, because surely at some point. Uh, the rest of us um, can do our bit to bring hope and in- inspire and, and all the things that come with it. And I say we, I mean, include everybody, and I especially include politicians. No, true. But uh, I think, yeah, I think we've, we've all got our own opinions about the politicians. And one of the things I think that made a lot of people angry this week was that picture of our state president um, lifting the trophy in front of all the players. Um yeah, uh, I know that's nothing new. Politicians across the world do that. Um, you know, they've all muscled in on sporting teams' glory, but it's it's precisely because of of a government's inability to govern and and, and bring people hope that this team actually has more of a burden. Yeah, I just want to raise something there. Uh, if uh, and this should be maybe the last word on it. Uh, did he raise it with his left hand or his right? Because otherwise we should have shot <laughs> Buffalo. Yeah, it should have been Buffalo. Buffalo, yeah. Um, we probably need to move on. 
Speaking of drinking, um, um, I think I think we have to mention that we we don't have a wine this t- t- today in the wine segment. Um, because precisely, there's so many sour grapes out there. The rest of the world rugby that um, we don't really need one at the moment. <laughs> leave it for the 2023. Not a 2023. Not a good vintage, obviously. Well, definitely not in certain nations. I think it'd be a wonderful vintage in South Africa. But yeah, it's just um, I, I just I, I mean the one of the most inane comments I saw was another podcast saying that the box are friendless in world rugby because of the way they won the World Cup, and I just thought to myself. Geez, that's and and I think there's a guy, uh, Tom, who does a website called Three Red Kings, a Munster website, who, who sort of answered them and said, "Well, oh goody, they tip. So what a pity they've lost the Friendship Cup, the Web Ellis Friendship Cup. That's so such a pity. Mm. That's not what we play mm. for. So that's the uh, yeah. At the end of the day, I'm quite I'm quite happy that the box won and the people they played for they won it for them. But yeah, let's move on. Let's look into the rest of the tournament and pack the tournament. Liam, you were there for eight long long weeks." We, uh, I'm sure you uh, saw the, the the good, the bad, and the ugly. So let's talk a bit about the tournament itself as a tournament. You've been to a number of them. I've been to a number of them in the past. Uh, what was your assessment of France 2023 as a whole? Well, I think the first thing one has to say is that the tournament is very long. Um, you know, September, what was it? I arrived there September 5, first game September 8. Uh, that first week in September 8, September 9, that feels a long time ago, and it probably is. Uh, that has been addressed. So the next World Cup will be shorter, but there will be more teams uh, in Australia. So basically what that will boil down to is that uh, the your, your sort of recovery time between matches uh, will be compromised. Uh, look, it's something they've agreed to, so we will have to see how that pans out. Um, but... Again, I really hope that that doesn't um, impact bigger on your sort of second-tier nations because often we've seen even at previous World Cups that they get the shorter turnarounds and that that is spread more equitably. Um, but it'll be interesting to see how they, you know, how they how they go about that. Um, we've spoken about the laws and you know the the things that that rile the coaches and players, and there were a number of coaches that that left the tournament sort of with a sour taste in the mouth. Um, you know, they, their teams made a, a good go of it uh, and then lost a crucial game, and then they had to leave, and then they lament the fact that they didn't have enough game time or build up. That obviously is, is an issue that is being addressed by World Rugby, but not addressed adequately because you'll only really see the the real benefits of that uh, come 20, 2030. Um so again, we'll have to we'll have to wait for things to to improve on that front because it's it's just ridiculous that you have um, you know seven eight teams that live on a you know the different different rules apply to them. Yeah, and I think it I think in a way it's probably going to get worse, and that's my fear is with the with the new what's what's this World League what they call it the Test Championship the Nations or- Cup. Well, whatever they call well, it. Well, they haven't actually attached the proper name to it yet, but yeah. Yeah, well, but the, the whole thing about the top 10 sort of teams uh, in the North and the South sort of get, getting together for a test championship, I think the thing that worries me is that, one, the, the smaller nations are one excluded. Secondly, there's no there's no um, a promotion relegation till 2030, and nothing yeah. stops the bigger nations at that stage if England are going through a very bad patch and could be relegated. Nothing stops mm-hmm. them from changing their minds. And, yeah. and excluding everybody totally. Um, and I think that's the biggest thing because to me, it's the absolute travesty 
will be if uh, Portugal can't kick on and build on with all those wonderful moments they gave us in the Georgia and the Chile. And at the end of the day, you want 24 nations, but you need to have, you can't have 24 nations and just six or seven competitive nations because then it doesn't matter at all. You're with Brendan Nell and Liam Delcom on the To The Last Drop podcast. The, the other thing about the World Cup that uh, stood out again, and, and we've known this for a while already, is just the, the rapaciousness of the organizing committee. Uh, it doesn't matter where it gets played because, I mean, they're there to make as much money as they can. I mean, uh, they are they are cold corporate beasts. I mean, they, they see a buck in everything. Um, so that comes to the merchandising, and they don't even do that very well because often people <laughs> would arrive at a game two hours before and there's a certain item that they're looking for, and it's, it's not available for some reason. Uh, the catering isn't great. Uh, it's expensive. Everything is expensive. But the late-night kickoffs, oh, my word. I mean, that's, it makes – for the people who actually buy the tickets and they have to go to Star de France, uh, way in the north of Paris, um, the getting there is, is one thing, but the going home is even worse because you end up on a packed metro train. Um, you, you can't take, uh, if you have a young family and you were hoping to take them to a World Cup final, you, you can't use public transport. You'll have to somehow make another way. Um, so I understand why they did it because it's, it's, it's about television. It's about, um, getting as many French and, and global eyeballs onto the, onto the spectacle. Uh, in France, they have this thing where the eight o'clock news is sacrosanct. You don't change that. So. Or Rugby World Cup had to find uh, a later time, but that's why games kicked off at nine o'clock. Um, but I mean, when, when when the tournament is played elsewhere, they need to find a way to accommodate people who actually took the time to travel to the event mm. to pay top dollar uh, to be there. I mean, that's that, that to me makes sense instead of uh, placing your focus elsewhere. I mean, but uh, again, I'm repeating myself here. They are about making as much money as they possibly can. Um, well, yeah, that's, it's, cool. that's, that's something that. Yeah, that's the one reason why the tournament will never come to Africa. So again, so um because they literally want to make as much money. That's why it's going to Australia because there'll be a certain amount, you know, and the currency strong. America after that, and I wouldn't be surprised if after that, and I know I'm making a very strange, bold prediction here, but um I wouldn't be surprised if 2035 goes to somewhere like Qatar, uh Dubai, Saudi mm-hmm. Arabia. They don't have to be a rugby nation, but if they can guarantee the cash. I mean, Saudi Arabia, just in another in other sports, is basically they bought the whole sport of golf. They've now bought a FIFA World Cup. And how many teams? Mm. I mean, what stops them or anybody in that sort of part of the world with too yeah. much cash from buying a World Cup? And we'll all have to mm. play like the Football World Cup in 40-degree heat. Yeah. yeah, they're putting a sports washing on a very long cycle, aren't they? Yeah. Um in fact, a New Zealand journalist asked Bill Beaumont uh, a couple of weeks, about two weeks ago, um, about whether there's any chance of the tournament going back to New Zealand. Because, again, you know, it's about the economy and the size of the economy that you you take the World Cup to. Um, and he, of course, gave the normal sort of, uh, you know, the platitudes of, no, no, of course, New Zealand's a great rugby nation, without actually answering the question properly. Um, so it is about the the amount of money they can rake in. Yeah, and no, I'm afraid New Zealand, even though the currency is stronger than ours, they they probably got the same problem as us. Is yeah. it's too small a nation? To- although, although, although I'll say this: uh, given the number of rugby eyeballs we have in this country, uh, infrastructure needs to obviously be improved. Um, 
I, I think they can still make enough money, but we also need to uh, do our bit, and we clearly have it. Yeah, and I think the, the, the problem comes for me is I, I've no doubt that if we spend a bit on infrastructure and we uh, and we have we've got magnificent you know, fans etc. that'll go to these games, but the the question is, will you be able to get forty thousand people on a Tuesday to watch Namibia play Romania, for instance, which France did? You know, that type of, they got those type yeah. of cards in for those small games, which um, I'm not sure we'll get that in, in this country for those sort of games, though. So I think mm. that's my opinion. And that was also, I have to say, one of the, the nice features of, 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 of those matches where at some point, it doesn't matter who's involved, at some point the locals will break into the La Masale during the mm. game and it just gave the whole thing a, a better vibe. <laughs> I, I saw there was quite a few pundits that got quite irritated with that, but... Uh, can these French not sing any other song? I mean, but you in France, I mean, what do you think they do? They, <laughs> they drink wine, eat baguettes, and sing La Masala. Well, they, they're, not, they're not Welsh, let's put it that way. Yeah, so exactly, exactly. <laughs> no, you know, I mean, it, it is one of those things. I mean, uh, but yeah, just looking just looking at our list here, what are we still talking about? Um, yeah, the World Rugby Awards, Yeah. <laughs> We, we, yeah, we also haven't we have also haven't touched on the standout players. I mean, in the yeah, but I think let's let's let's. Uh, I handle the World Rugby Awards quickly, and 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 <laughs> look, they're always a farce. They're always a joke. They always there's always some some bizarre um, decision. I don't think they were too far fetched this time around. I think, um, but one thing that really stood out was the um, the lack of uh, the lack of Springboks. Um, nominated um in uh, getting awards etc and I, and by that i say anybody listening from other countries Adi Sevier's would probably be a great great world rugby player of the year anytime in in his career because he's just one of those guys that consistently delivers but you got to feel for somebody like Evan Etzebeth who for the last 3 4 years has probably been one of the top 3 players in world rugby and just never gets the recognition um, yeah, and, and that world team of the year, I mean, the box won 16 of their last 18 games. The world coach of the year, um, yeah, surely it's, 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 it was just quite stark how they didn't take the world cup into, into effect, um, in making those decisions, which was rather bizarre to me, you know. Yeah, because they, we have to point out the, the awards, uh, happen. The night after the World Cup final, so it, it, it is close. Uh, there's a very close turnaround time, but there's no doubt that they should include it. Uh, at, at, you just get the sense that uh, they've almost made their minds up before the you know before the grand final is played. Uh, yeah, you have to feel for it a bit because I mean he's got uh, two World Cup medals. Um, but, you know he's he's just one of those guys who always puts yeah. everything out there. Hardly ever has a bad game. I mean I. I I can't think of one that, that sort of jumps out. Um, and yeah, it, it, you know, Ardi Savia has, has similar characteristics and, uh, you know, goes out there like a warrior every time. But uh, ultimately, you know, it's um, if you have to have something really tangible to prove you, um, you know, your candidacy. And in this case, I mean, I mean there's no doubt that, that it's a bit, in my mind as well, should have, should have had it. And as much as the box as well. Uh, as as team of the year, my word! I mean, what what else do you want? How does a a Grand Slam in in the Six Nations, for instance, compare to a World Cup? Exactly, and I mean, especially when I say, I mean, I understand Ireland had a great year, but 
I mean, when you when you say that one team was on a 16, 16 unbeaten games, etc., with the Grand Slam and the Six Nations, and then you say, well, the other team won sixteen out of eighteen games yeah. and the Rugby World Cup. So, I mean, what more do you really want? Um, and I don't know. I just, yeah, to me, unfortunately, this year they looked again like consolation prizes for the for it's like participation prizes for those, and and it's not that I I feel any of them weren't worthy of the prize. I just felt that. There should have been a bit more recognition for the Springboks. So. But yeah, let's move on to to standout players. Um, yeah, give me your five standout players of the tournament. The unfortunate thing here is uh, you kind of have to look at players that you know made it to the business end of the tournament. You know, as well as you know teams like uh, Fiji and, and Portugal performed well in 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 the pool stages. Um, it ultimately comes back to you know the, the the bigger names in the semi-finals and the finals and you know again that that Antoine Dupont performance in the quarterfinal against the Springboks with the big injury that he had coming into that game he wasn't at his best but my word what he was able to put out there under those conditions uh, was absolutely superb Bundy Ake was yeah. phenomenal uh, there's no other word yeah. to, to describe probably- it. In fact, there is another word to describe it. Um, there was uh, that try scored against New Zealand where he was in a very tight space. There were defenders around him, and then he sort of tiptoed one way, then the other way, and then he surged for the line. Um, I described him as a bison at, at the ball shore because that's exactly what it looked like. Fantastic yeah. tournament for, for Bandiaki. Uh, Will Jordan, eight tries. Um, I, had, I was never in doubt that he would not get on the scoreboard uh, in the final. Because that's what yeah. the box do to New Zealand wingers with, with a big reputation. Uh, Aaron Smith, uh, fantastic yeah. Yeah, uh, tournament for him and a, a wonderful way to bow out. Didn't get the medal, but boy, he got close. Uh, we've spoken about Eben Eds a bit. I thought uh, JC Krill, also yeah. outstanding tournament. Yeah. Um, did more, did everything that was expected of him and more. Uh, we spoke about Adi Surveyor uh, briefly. Um, and then a guy like Peter Steff, the two way in the final, um, I asked him a question about two weeks ago about, you know, the sort of the state of body and mind in this world cup compared to four years ago, where he was obviously a, an absolute machine. And he gave me a stock standard answer about, you know, how, about the collective within the Springbok squad, how, how they sort of seek improvement every week. And he's just one of them because you get, you just got the sense he's building up to something big. And that's why I asked him the question. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that performance in the final was just otherworldly. Uh, and then probably the player that helped us get that extra percent and got us over the line was Andre Pollard. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think him coming in at the right time and you sort of look back and you look at the whole, the conspiracy theories as we've spoken on the show and all that stuff about him. Uh, and you sort of wonder if that wasn't almost planned, you know, almost a, like a planned gamble that, that the box had. Um, to bring him in. Uh, and, uh, yeah, so just, I mean, all those guys, I agree 100% with. I thought the one player, I mean, and there's moments as well that stand out. I mean, I, I think, I think, uh, moments from Quacha Smith when he came on the turnover mm-hmm. against England, was it France? In turnover against France. Um, I, I look at a guy like, uh, um, I think Damien Penoir had, had, Penoir had, a, um, uh, a, a decent tournament, but probably poor by his standards um, against the bigger teams. He didn't get quite the Mark Taleo to me was is is if he carries on like this, he's going to be an All Black great. I, I, a very slippery player. Yeah, it's it's amazing to see a guy 
Yeah. And especially with the Springbok defensive system, managed to step out of tackle so easily. And uh, I, I, I described him as uh, in copy as Ananias Martin. <laughs> okay. Um, yeah, and then just looking at the others, I mean, uh, I, th- I think. I think Owen Farrell, I've got to give him credit, finishes the tournament's top scorer, um, despite coming into the tournament with a, a red card of his head, a red card card of his head. Uh, got to give him some credit. I thought Courtney Laws for England was probably their best player. Fine. And, and they're going to miss him a lot when he leaves. Uh, looking at the other players, I'm trying to think of the other, um, yeah, uh, I think Argentina was probably my disappointment of the tournament. I just expected so much more of them, and and they didn't deliver. The low point of the tournament to me was the Tom Curry Bongi saga, which I just felt was, I don't know, looking back, almost so unnecessary. Um, and the way it but was, in the end became this, this massive distraction. Yeah, um, yeah. If if yeah, if the, if if it got to a point where the where it went. Um, uh, to its natural conclusion, in other words, there was evidence and something was proved and there was an outcome, then yes, you know, then it's, you know, then that that is obviously what sh- should be happening. But, um, yeah, in the absence of, uh, of but evidence, as you say, anything it's, coming from these. Like, it's almost so typical world rugby. I mean, I remember also questioning Bill Beaumont and Alan Gilpin after the World Cup 7s well, disaster at Stellenbosch when they tried to put in 16 hours of rugby in one day and had the, the blitz box playing at 10 o'clock at night. Um, and they just also gave platitudes and we'll have, look at the review. And I think that's part of the problem is, is I think you sit with a, with a game that can, can just be so magical. And if you look at the quarterfinals, despite everything else that happened, um, the draw, the, all these things, we ended up getting a hell of a great last three weekends of the world cup, which is what we wanted. Um, but world rugby, despite world rugby. And you get the feeling that if we'd taken them out of the game, um, out of the whole World Cup tournament, we'd probably be better off. And, uh, yeah, it's just rugby needs change. Rugby needs to grow. And I'm not quite sure World Rugby are the people to do that. Are you are you saying you should just get a travel agent that sends out tickets to these <laughs> teams and invite, arrive in Paris on such a day, and off we go? Well, <laughs> I, I know. I, think, I, mean, I know there's a lot. Of, I, I know what you mean. Wrong. There's a lot of, a lot of people that never get the sort of applause that work hard behind the scenes and, and really put in a lot of work. But I think just in yeah. terms of the leadership structures, I think there's, um, a lot to be done. Uh, Liam, I, I think we, uh, uh we're running fast out of time. Yeah. We're running fast out of time. Yeah. But one more thing to, 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 uh, to address and that is the go, the way forward. I don't mean of the, 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 the anger of the Irish fans after we've appropriated zombie now, seeing as everyone see, seems to be singing Rossi, uh, but uh, <laughs> instead of zombie, uh, I'm talking more about, uh, the fact that Leinster have actually struck gold and now Jacques Ninalva has gone to them. So it's going to be a very different team, uh, going forward. I know that Mark Alexander said at the airport that they're going to take their time in finding a new coach. Um, I think you and I both know that there's probably not going to be a new coach. I think it's probably going to be an old coach. And the, the chances are quite likely that for the next year, couple of years, um, you probably have Rossi um, doing the, the coaching until um, they, they groom somebody. And I think that's going to be the plan that's probably going to go out. There won't be any surprise to us. But Jock leaving, quite a big blow. Yeah, you're right. I mean, they have um, partly nailed their colours to the mast by saying that they will uh, they will look internally 
um, or they'll stay internal in terms of um, getting somebody to coach the box. So, yeah, it, it won't be a it won't be a search where they cast a net um, out there to see what comes back. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, Jacques will be a massive loss uh, to the Springboks. Um, he's always been, uh, he's always had a strong voice in that in that squad in that team environment. Um, even before he became head coach, um, I remember in Japan in 2019. Uh, the team was in Omazaki. They were building up to the game against uh, Italy, which was obviously became an important game after they lost the opening game. Um, and I remember being uh, in a in a press conference room or the room that was designated for the press conference um, be, before it started. But next door there was a Springbok um, a, a team briefing, uh, and obviously with, uh, with discussing defence. And the way Jacques spoke to them, we obviously we, we couldn't see them, but we, I could hear them. And the you know the authority with which he spoke um, left me in little doubt that uh, you know come post twenty nineteen that he would have an even stronger voice. And then there's no doubt the players have have responded wonderfully to him. I mean the way CR paid tribute to him after the final in, in the press conference uh, was actually quite moving. Um, so. The most important thing here is that he has firmly um, earned the respect of the players. I mean, they are sorry to see him leave because he's he's made a huge impression there. Not just since 2018, but he, was, he had actually been involved with the, with the box setup uh, previously as well. Yeah, and I, I think and I think one that there's the the difficulty of finding somebody who is as passionate and as meticulous as he is on defence um, for the position. And I think the other problem we have, um, I can understand why SA Rugby, you've won back to back World Cups. You'd want to keep the team as, as together as possible, the management team. Um, Felix Jones is obviously also moving on. There's, but the, the, I think the, the danger there is what we saw with New Zealand, with Ian Foster. Mm. Um, I think it's quite admirable that, that Jacques has opted to, to sort of move on, try something else in a different country, and maybe not even have the tag of the, the head coach. It's about personal development here. So, I mean, kudos to him. Yeah. And I think, I think that's, I think that's the biggest worry for me. And, and I mean, the obvious front runners are Dion and, and Mazwandile. Probably Mazwandile, uh, stick more than Dion, um, in a couple of years time to take us to the next World Cup. But, um, there is also a danger in that. In that, um, you know, the, yeah. the danger with Jacques was always that he was Rossi's sidekick, and um, and that, that he didn't really come through on his own merits through the whole ranks and stuff. Not that that really has to be a thing, but um, as they've shown, but uh, yeah, that that would always be the danger and the worry for that. So I'm sure over the coming mm. months, yeah, I think we they've earned the benefit of the doubt. Uh, two World Cups, you can't argue with that. So. We're going to give them the benefit of that, whatever comes next for the Springboks. But yeah, um, I think we're all going to go and rest now and just uh, take in the sights and scenes of the uh, trophy tour. And then. Yeah, absolutely. In in fact, we should probably also mention that uh, a large number of those Springboks that won this World Cup uh, are bracketed 31, 32, 33. Mm. Um, So there will have to be a proper rebuild uh, of that squad come next World Cup. Yeah. Uh, a, a few of them, uh, when I say a few, uh, uh, probably half a dozen of them can easily still make the next World Cup, but it's going to take some finessing. 
Yeah, but I mean, we won't have 33 of the same players. If we get half of those players mm-hmm. back to a World Cup, we're going to be pretty lucky. But that's maybe a topic for next week we can chat about. It's about who's coming through. And, uh, you know, four years is a long time. As we've seen, there's no such thing as a four-year cycle because in, in 2018, 2019 was, what, 18 months? And then if you really take it this time around, it was if you take out COVID and the Lions tour, uh, there was mm. only really two years development in this team as well. So, I mean, I don't think the four-year cycle counts too much, but in this case, we're going to have to develop players. But I think that's... Yeah, you have to do... Yeah. Sorry, man. <laughs> you can take us home. No, no, I was going to say, you you have to basically do what you have to do. I mean, that's that, those are the cards they were dealt and they, you know, they did it. Uh, so that's it for us this week, and we'll be back next week. Uh, of course, no more World Cup, but we've got a lot to focus on next week. And uh, we'll be back, and hopefully those um, sour grapes will have matured into um, something a bit more palatable by then uh, for, for the rest of the world. In the meantime, we'll just p- keep on drinking the champagne. Anyway, this is To The Last Drop. See you next week. Thanks for listening. And a reminder, you can find all the To The Last Drop podcasts on the Brendan Nell YouTube channel, iono.fm, Spotify, player.fm, Pocket Casts, Google Podcasts, and iTunes, or wherever you find your favorite podcasts.